Heavenly Father, in the beginning you blessed your creation and all was very good. Uh, And we long for that uh, world. But we don't live in it. And we pray that you would uh, teach us why the world is the way it is. Beautiful and yet so broken. Teach us to understand it. And we pray respond rightly to it for your namesake. Amen. I wonder how you would react if everything in your head was put on display for all the world to see. Your thoughts, your feelings, everything. There is a story about Arthur Conan Doyle, the man who wrote the Sherlock Holmes novels, that I I suspect is probably apocryphal, but it's quite a good story, so I'll tell it anyway. In the spirit of mischief, one day, Conan Doyle sent a telegram to 12 prominent uh, members of society that he was uh, friends with. It was the same telegram to each one, and the simple message was this. All is revealed. Flee. And the story runs that five of them were already in France before they realised they'd been pranked. Uh, They didn't want their lives revealed. There's a much older version, incidentally, of that story that runs a bishop wanted to expose corrupt priests and said the same message, and the entire diocese emptied. And I'm afraid that is sadly more believable. Uh, But these stories resonate, I think, at least for me, because we know how excruciating it would be to have everything on display. And the truth is, I think this is a far more real fear today than it's ever been, isn't it? All our digital data is being stored by Apple and Google and Amazon and so forth. Big, faceless corporations, big data, your whole life can be revealed with the click of a button to everybody in the world. Just imagine it for a moment, a TV screen hovering above your head that follows you around everywhere you go, showing everything that's going on in your thoughts and your feelings to those you meet. I wonder how many of us would be comfortable leaving the house. Perhaps we'd actually live more of our lives through the internet as we did all our shopping and everything from the safety of the sofa with the curtains drawn. So I hope that gets you squirming just a little bit. I think it should do. It should unsettle us. The idea that the whole world could know the real you in all your faults. Isn't that why our social media lives look nothing like our real lives? You've noticed that, haven't you? Nobody ever posts a photo of the rain outside their window from their desk, do they? They never say, look, this is my life. They post their pictures from the Maldives, don't they? When it's sunny and everything is beautiful. It's why skeletons go in closets. (coughs) The discomfort of having everything on display is a universal experience because there are some things that unite all humanity. Things that are true of every single one of us from infancy. Core facts about what it is to be a human being living in this world. And Genesis 3 reveals those things. It is foundational to understanding what it is to be a human being. For us, for everyone around us, and explaining the state of the world that we live in. Last week we saw that Adam and Eve sinned for the very first time. They had a beautiful world to live in, but they wanted more. They thought they could be happier. They thought they could make the world better. 
But there's only one way to go from perfection, isn't there? It's got to be downhill. And this morning we're looking at the consequences of that rebellion, how sin has broken the world. And what we're going to see is uh, three things that run not just through our passage, but through the whole of human history. Three things that are revealed again and again and again through the scriptures. Uh, First, we're going to see the destructive power of sin uh, in and of itself. Uh, That is to say, uh, sin is so alien to the way God set the world up that the world is broken just by the very act of rebellion. Then secondly, because God hates sin, he has to punish it. There's active punishment as well as natural consequences. And thirdly, because God loves us, he continues to show us mercy. Three themes, three ideas here in our passage. But I want us to see that uh, the tensions between those things that come up first in our passage uh, run right through the rest of the Bible. The, The conflict that appears between God's justice and his mercy. His desire for sin to be punished absolutely and his desire to love his people. A tension that is only finally uh, resolved in the cross of Christ where love and mercy reign down together. A tension that is only fully, finally uh, fulfilled in the new creation. So let's start with uh, what we might call the natural consequences of sin. The destructive power in verses 7 to 13. See, before God comes in and pronounces judgment, the creation is already ruined, isn't it? And the way Moses shows us this is with the idea of nakedness that runs right through our whole passage. Back in verse 5, the serpent says to Eve, uh, your eyes will be opened. And that's the first thing we're told in verse 7, isn't it? The eyes of both of them were opened. He told her that she would know good and evil, that is, she'd know how to decide what was right and wrong for herself. And God tells us in verse 22 that in some sense this has happened as well. In some sense the devil was right. But the consequence of this is not becoming little deities, not becoming little gods, which is what the promise was. God, after all, is a creator, not a destroyer. But here in verse 7 we begin to see creation unravel. We begin to see the power of the lie to destroy. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened... And they realised they were naked. Of course, if you've ever looked at the pictures in a children's Bible, you know that they were naked from the beginning. And and the passage has told us, verse 25 of chapter 2, they were no problem with that. They were both naked and they felt no shame. It was okay. Because they had nothing to hide, so to speak. But now that's gone. It isn't stated explicitly, but now they are ashamed. In contrast to chapter 2, they try to cover themselves with fig leaves, but that hardly deals with the problem, does it? We might want to ask, why is nakedness now a problem? Have they just woken up to the idea that going to the supermarket in the nudie is a bad idea? I take it there's more going on than that. Look at verse 10. Adam says to God, I was afraid because I was naked. What is Adam afraid of? Does he think that putting on fig leaves makes him bulletproof in some sense? Well, he's afraid of God. And he's ashamed before his wife. Why? Because Adam is exposed. His nakedness is symbolic of his exposure in every sense. 
And so Adam and Eve hide behind clothes from each other. They hide behind bushes from God. They're afraid to be seen, to be seen for what they are. Selfish. Covenant breakers. Adam and Eve have broken faith with God. They've rejected his word. They've believed the lie that God is evil. They've snubbed him and they've broken his world. And they're afraid that their rebellion will be seen for what it is. And so they hide. They hide from God, but they hide from each other. It affects their marriage. Do you see that? See, now they can see each other for what they are as well. Untrustworthy. Covenant breakers. And if covenant breakers in general with God, why not specifically in their marriage? And so the question now comes for Adam and Eve, can they trust each other? And they hide behind clothes. There'll be some married couples in our congregation who struggle to be naked in front of each other. And it's not because you feel fat, it's because you feel exposed. We all get that, don't we? To be naked is to be fully known, to be vulnerable to one another. And now Adam and Eve realise they cannot afford to be that vulnerable with each other. I think that's perfectly encapsulated for us in verse 12. God asks Adam how he knew he was naked and Adam responds. And listen to the emphasis. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. What's he saying? Yeah, yeah, I ate it. Hands up, I'll admit it. But let's be clear whose fault this is, shall we? She did it first. She took the lead. I had hardly anything to do with it. And, and while we're at it, you put her in here with me, God. If you hadn't done that, nothing else would have happened. It's ultimately your fault. I had nothing to do with it, God. <coughs> See what's happened to their marriage? Pointing fingers. The blame game. It's not my fault. And though Eve uh, can't point the finger at Adam, she does point the finger at the, the state, doesn't she? Verse 13. It wasn't me, Gav. Honest. Do you see two consequences here? At first there is the guilt. They've done something wrong. And they know they've done something wrong. They've broken God's one law in the garden and they deserve to be punished. And they're afraid of the punishment. And we get that, don't we? As a culture, we're pretty good on the, 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 the guilt and punishment side of things. But there's also the shame. We're not much of a shame culture in the UK. But it's right here and right through the Bible. The embarrassment, the, the social awkwardness that comes from being a sinner. The refusal to admit our guilt... Not because it's not true, not because we don't believe it's true, but because we're afraid of the stigma that comes with being recognised as a sinner. It's a shame that means we struggle alone in our sins. We don't talk to each other about them because we're embarrassed, we're ashamed. We fight our demons alone because we dare not speak even to our nearest and dearest about the help we need. We prefer to hide in the bushes. And so that glorious openness symbolised in in chapter 2 That vulnerability and that unity that go together, two becoming one in mind and body, is lost. That is the destructive power of sin. Rupturing our relationship with God to such an extent that we now have a broken relationship with each other. Even our closest relationships are not as close as they ought to be. The weight of sin, of guilt and of shame 
leads us to hide, to put up a front to each other, a social media image, not the reality. Don't let anyone see what I'm really like on the inside. Those are the natural consequences of sin. But then we find that God must also punish sin, verses 14 to 24. Because the consequences don't stop there, do they? Verse 14 is the turn from the consequences God wrote into the fabric of reality to the active punishment for rebellion. God hates sin and he must punish it. And I want us to see here that uh, the punishments fit the crime. As so often in the Bible, uh, there's a delicious way that God uh, ties these things together. uh, The perfect punishment for the crime committed. So verses 14 and 15. The serpent has tried to rule over Adam and Eve to make himself their God in in the place of the true God, Yahweh. So what does God do? Cursed are you above all livestock, he says. That is, you will be least of all the creatures on the earth. You wanted to be God, now you're going to be the least of all. You will crawl on your belly, he says. It's a picture of being bowed to the earth. Every other animal will stand over you and despise you. That's the first punishment for the serpent. But the second is there in verse 15. I will put enmity, that is warfare, between you and the woman. uh, Between your offspring and hers. Uh, we're odd, we've had a pet snake. Uh, most people, I think, are afraid of snakes. I'm a bit afraid of snakes. It was a bit of an odd thing. You know, marry Mim, inherit the snake. Most people, I think, understand there is a perpetual warfare between serpent kind and humanity. The serpent wanted to rule over mankind. Now there is a war between them. And moreover, it's a war in which he will bruise, that is, he will, he will attack and he will... Uh, occasionally uh, gain a victory uh, but his head will be crushed he'll lose the war punishments that fit the crime and then God turns to the woman uh, in verse 16 and he curses two more things uh, to understand the first we need to remember verse uh, chapter 1 verse 28 just look back across the page it's on the same uh, on, on the other leaf 1 verse 28 God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number Fill the earth and subdue it. And in chapter 2, Eve was given to Adam to make that possible. Adam couldn't do the ruling the earth thing by himself. What he needed was a a, a like opposite helper to work with him to multiply images of God and together as one large family to rule over the earth. That was the purpose of Eve's creation in the beginning. Purpose of humanity in the beginning. But now the very act of multiplication is cursed. The very thing that she was created for is cursed. She'll still bring forth children, but it will be agony. And for others of us here, we know the agony of not being able to bring forth children. The curse is on the womb. Death imposed on the means of life. The second aspect of of the curse on Eve is there in her marriage. We've already seen that marriage is not in a great state, but God says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And we think, don't we, that's akin to, you will fancy your husband and he will take the lead in your marriage. And that sounds like a pretty good thing. As curses go, it's not a bad curse, is it? Just flick over the page to chapter 4, verse 7, would you? 
Uh, the exact same language is used again in relation to uh, Cain and sin. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. In the Hebrew, it's exactly the same language. And the point isn't sin fancies you. The point is sin wants to be your master. And that's what Eve will be like with her husband. She's meant to be his helper, but now she's going to try and take over to supplant him. And I take it in many homes... The husband is the henpecked subject of his wife, at least within the four walls of the home. But then the other side of the relationship is also cursed. Cain is not to lead sin, he is to crush it, to kill it, and so it is with Adam. He will rule over his wife, dominate her, crush her, abuse her by his greater physical strength. This is curse indeed, isn't it? That beautiful union, two becoming one, is now a war zone. A physical, emotional and spiritual battleground. Let me be clear, neither position is good, neither position is acceptable, but it is natural to us now because of God's curse. It is punishment for our rebellion against God. It is not the way things ought to be, and we mustn't accept it as because it's normal that it's good. And so as a church, we have to say no. No to the denial of gender difference that means that men and women have become interchangeable in our culture. We have given roles. No to women taking the leadership from their husbands in the home or husbands being passive for the sake of a quiet life. No to domestic abuse, whether it is violent or it's emotional or spiritual, whether against the husband which happens frequently, or more commonly against the wife and children. This last point in particular is a place where the church in general has been far too silent. Over the past three weeks we've seen that the home is to be rightly ordered for good. It's supposed to be a place of love and mutual flourishing under God's rule. But so often in our homes sin reigns and men in particular can be violent or abusive let me be clear please hear me that must not happen if this is a particular struggle in your relationship please come and see me we can help if you are abusive and you know it for the sake of your family come and see me let us talk about this let's try and get you some help to live God's way If this is happening to you, if you are in a relationship where you are being abused in some way, come and see me. There's help for you too. If you are aware of it happening in somebody else's relationship, please come and see me. I know of people in the church who've been terribly abused and the church has handled it really badly. Not not here, but elsewhere. We do untold damage to the gospel if we allow that sort of thing in our church life together. It is bad for people. It is bad for the gospel. The church is to be a safe place. It's a place where the curse of the fall that we're seeing here in Genesis 3 is being reversed by the Spirit of God living in us through the gospel. Change is possible, but it is very hard to achieve by yourself. 
Come and seek a friend. Talk to me. Talk to somebody else that you trust in the church. Let us do something about it. But then God turns to Adam, doesn't he? He is punished. Uh, Notice, it's very easy, isn't it, to read verse 17. Because you listen to your wife and think that's a a good reason never to listen to your wife. Look what he says in in its totality. It's not because he shouldn't have ignored his wife in general. But Adam is punished because he listened to his wife when she explicitly (coughs) contradicted God's word. Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Do you see? Adam, you are responsible for the fruit being eaten. She deceived you and you allowed it to happen. You are responsible for this family and you are responsible for it before me. And so over the page, what does God curse? The ground. Why? Well, again, go back to uh, the command in chapter 1, verse 28. Man is meant to subdue and rule over creation. But now the land will put up a fight. Thorns and thistles it will produce for you. But also, there's something beautiful about the fact that Adam has sinned by eating fruit. He's disobeyed God by filling his face. And so now, it's going to be a curse on filling your face forever. The ground is cursed. But there's a final curse, isn't there? It's one that falls not only on uh, men, but on mankind in general. It's the one that God promised in chapter 2, verse 17. If you do this, you will die. It's the one the devil denied. You will not surely die, he said. But what does God say? There is a day coming when every person, verse 19, will return to the ground. The devil promised that we would be little gods, ruling over creation in God's place. But God says you cannot escape the fact that you are created from the dust of the earth and to it you will return. And so the curse from God is toil, pain and death. That is curse indeed. It's the world you see around us, isn't it? Every news bulletin, every newspaper, every social circle, every office that you've ever worked in, this is what it's like. And then they kicked out of the garden. The cherub with the flaming sword stands guard at the end of the chapter. A visual demonstration of the fact that the way to the tree of life is now taken away. They will die. They're beginning to die now. They've taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the consequence is death. Not yet, but certainly, inevitably. And so it is with us. And how often do we deny that? How much of our time in the West particularly, is spent ignoring that fact, dyeing our hair, wrinkle creams, putting our old people in homes that we don't have to look at. I remember talking to my aunt a few few years ago. Her mum had been living with her for for the previous 15, 20 years since her dad had died. And she said to me, we've just put my mum in a home. It's such a relief, I'll only have to see her once a fortnight. Why? Because her mum was in her late 90s and she was old and crumbly and, and it's... When you're 70-odd, it's quite depressing seeing your own death, your own mortality in the face of your mother. It's not because you didn't love her. We pretend that we will not die. It's the world we still live in, full of sin and full of curse. So much of this chapter is not a happy one, but it is real, isn't it? It's, it's, It's the way the world is. You see it, don't you? 
But Moses shines a light on, uh, as he shines the light on why the world is the way it is, there is just a danger that we miss all of the notes of grace in this chapter as well. And so that's where we must go now. God is merciful to his people. Let's start with the obvious one. Yes, they're put on the road to death. They're removed from the tree of life, but they don't die immediately. In his justice, God could have clipped his fingers and they would have fallen down dead. And that would have been justice. If you eat it, you will die. But instead, he shows mercy. And so now the woman is given a name. She's called Eve, which means the mother of the living. Cursed, yes. But there are children to come. A whole human race that flows out of this. And yeah, Cain is a murderer. That's not a great hit rate for your children. But, but Abel and Seth, they're both good guys. Both faithful men of God. I take it Adam and Eve are probably Christians. Just like you and me. They're not the super bad guys. They've stuffed it up and so have you and I. And though Adam and Eve's marriage is no longer the endless bliss it was meant to be, they stick it out, don't they? They, they stay together. They carry out the purpose for which God had made them. And so you see, even though there is much sin and much curse in the world, it is not as bad as it could be. There's still much light in the world, isn't there? Still much goodness. Hell will be much worse. The most stunning note of grace is there in verse 15. It's the promise actually to the serpent. It's the promise to which every other promise in the Bible is related. It is the, if you like, the core promise from which all others spread out. It's the first statement of the gospel. Verse 15, I will put enmity between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In Hebrew, the word for offspring is very similar to the word in English, in that it can be both plural or singular. He is my offspring. They are my offspring. Is it a plural or singular? One offspring or lots of offspring? Well, the answer is there, isn't it, towards the end of the verse. He. So yes, there will be a perpetual enmity between mankind in general and the devil and his demons. There will be an enmity... But the war will come to a decisive climax in one battle between one offspring of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent. Now, I'm no zoologist, do correct me if I'm wrong about this, but if you have your head crushed, that is not a good day. I take it that's a fairly final defeat, isn't it? It's the gospel in miniature. It's the promise that focuses on to Abraham's family in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Through his descendants, the whole world will be blessed. It it focuses on the prophet like Moses and in a king from David's line until we get to Jesus. Descendant of David, descendant of Abraham, a prophet like Moses. The new Adam, according to Paul in uh, Romans, who faced the same temptations they did, not in a beautiful garden, but in a wilderness and never sinned. A new humanity, a new fresh start, one who never gave the devil an inch. And he crushed Satan's head on the cross. All of the guilt and all of the shame of all of his people laid on Christ. Yeah, he was bruised. I mean, he was killed, wasn't he? But he rose to life. He still bears the scars, the same way we bear a bruise after you've fallen over and banged your knee. He still has those scars. 
Still got marks of the bruising, but he was bruised and the devil was crushed. The devil's power lies in two places, friends. First, the lies of verses 1 to 6. The lies that deceive us into sinning in the first place. God is not good. He doesn't love you. He doesn't want the best for you. Take it for yourself. Be in charge. Be God. And then he whispers in our ears, you've blown it now. He becomes the accuser. God can't love you. Can you imagine God loving you? And you've done it again. You're useless. Hopeless. The power to deceive and the power to accuse. And in our shame, we listen to the devil's accusation and think, maybe I am lost. Maybe that's it for me. And we bury that thought and, and we run from it and we, we lose sight of Jesus. And so let me speak to uh, three different groups in the room at the moment as we end. So perhaps you're somebody who feels that guilt and that shame, but you've not yet trusted in Jesus. You know that you've done things that God says are wrong. You've lived your life to be God for yourself and you know that you've failed. And you hear the devil's voice inside telling you you're not good enough. Well, let me say, God is speaking through that voice to you this, this morning. He says, you're right. You're not good enough for me. Not by yourself. You'll face me in judgment. I must punish sin. You will face me in judgment. When I sift the world and, and separate people into heaven and hell, you will face your own judgment. Your sins are real. I must punish sin forever. But you don't have to. You don't have to face justice yourself. Let Jesus meet it for you. He died for all of his people. If you come to him... Believe the promise of Genesis 3.15 that Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. Trust that promise. Let Jesus draw the sting of death for you by taking it on your behalf. Then I will welcome you into the new creation forever. A return to the garden, the garden city that is beautiful and eternal and where the devil can never touch you again. Let me ask you a question. What do you gain by delaying? Put your trust in Jesus today. Receive the assurance that all of your guilt and sin is washed away today. But secondly, there are many of us here who have been trusting Jesus for some time, but we're struggling. Perhaps we accept that our guilt is dealt with, but we're still ashamed. We keep our sins locked away from view. We put on our Sunday best face, don't we? Everything's fine in my world. We don't be seen for what we are before other Christians, even though God knows us fully and accepts us. And when we do that, we give up any chance of being helped to break free from the sins that dog us. John 1 talks about Jesus coming to bring light. When we step into the light, yes, our sins are exposed, but then they're dealt with and they're gone. As Christians, we're not supposed to prefer darkness, but yet we bury in the dark all of the things we're most embarrassed about about ourselves. When what we need is each other. To help us, to speak the truth to us, to remind us that Jesus has dealt with these things, not to condemn us, but to love us anyway. 
So let me be clear, every one of us here is a sinner. Every one of us needs help. We all need each other. But we have to begin by honestly asking for it from each other. But thirdly, yes, we're sinners. But the power of sin is broken now for Christians. The power of the devil to deceive us is broken because we have the truth And we have the Spirit. Christ died. Our sins are forgiven. In God's sight we're perfected so that God himself can live in our hearts by faith and whisper a different message. You don't have to do that this time. I know you've done it before. I know you're weak. But you don't have to go there today. Believe the promise. Believe Jesus and walk away. And slowly but surely we beat sin. Not all sin, not all the time. But little by little, we get victory over over sin. We find that we no longer have to hide in the darkness because there's much less for us to be ashamed of. We get freedom to live in the light, to leave the darkness behind us. We have that power because the Spirit is in us if we're Christians. And we need each other to help us to be reminded of that. And to keep walking in Christ's way. So don't give up the war on sin. Every day is a new chance for you to win little triumphs that add up to final victory. And that victory is assured, isn't it? When we slip and we fall and we will. Because when you sin, you know that Christ has already paid for it. Both for the guilt and for the shame. So you can be honest about it before God and before others. He's taken the sinning and the curse and one day he will bring us back to the tree of life in a garden city forever. And it will be wonderful. Let me just pray for us. Our Father, what an amazing thing it is that you have rescued your people who don't deserve it and promised our final victory. The devil will never touch us again. And we will be perfect before you forever, enjoying the bliss of that garden that was lost but will be restored through Christ. We long for it. And we long for uh, the freedom that we can have today from sin and judgment. Help us to help each other. Help us to be agents of change in each other's lives. Help us to remind each other of the truth of the gospel for your namesake. Amen.